0: Hey there, and welcome back. This is Robert Fleming. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, the regular podcast of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. With me today, as almost always, is my partner and friend, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings-Freeman. And uh, welcome, Elizabeth. I thought we'd talk about powers of attorney today.
1: Oh my gosh, Robert. This is one of my favorite topics, actually. It's the most important documents, I believe, anybody can have in their estate plan, and they're often overlooked.
0: And that's exactly where we're kind of headed. We always encourage people to send us questions or comment on our podcasts, and and we'll try to talk about their comments or, or answer their questions. And in response to that, one of our listeners sent in. a Kind of a long question. Normally, I don't read the whole question, but I think in order to understand and in order to, to sort of flesh out what we want to talk about, I want to have his whole question in, in, the, in the record, as it were. So uh, this, this person writes, says, I enjoy your podcast, um, but here's my problem. My wife has a durable power of attorney on her mother, who is currently 93, which she has had for 15 years. Mother's attorney advised my wife that the power of attorney could be used to place mother in a care facility. My wife began managing her mother's finances at mother's age 86, which if if my math skills are still intact is about seven years ago, as mother wasn't capable of determining or remembering what was important. When my wife's mother reached 90 and really couldn't care for herself, my wife and her sister, who happens to be a nurse, began a search for an appropriate placement. They found an appropriate placement, but my wife was told that that the, that her mother's attorney was incorrect, that her power of attorney could not be used to sign her mother into the care facility. that as uh, as the questioner says, no power of attorney stretched the legal distance to get that done. Without a guardianship, mother would have to personally sign a 22-page contract, initially in each each page. So they solved the problem in this case by getting the 93-year-old mother to actually sign 22 pages of documents. Uh, But uh, what a powerful question. What is the point of doing powers of attorney if they don't actually help solve problems?
1: Well, Robert, I think that's an Im- important question to ask. Two, two things that I think our listeners need to be aware of. One, the listener did not identify whether his wife had a durable financial power of attorney or a health power of attorney. Actually, the, the question is very well written but does not give that description. The other note I just want to make for our listeners, when you say placement – I think that the reference you're making is to where the person lives. Do you think I got that right, Robert?
0: I think so, and, and I think we also need to very quickly say uh, we haven't been told what state mother lives in, and so we can answer this question, we can talk about it, but we need to be very clear. We're talking about Arizona law because that's what we know, that's what we practice. Uh, and if mom happens to be living in some other state, The answer might be different, though I sort of suspect it would be pretty much the same in most states, at least.
1: So, Robert, when I think of a durable financial power of attorney, the really important thing to keep in mind there is the word financial. When I am acting as somebody's agent under a durable financial power of attorney, I don't have the ability to make legal decisions about things like medication or placement or Surgical procedures, those are all powers that are bestowed upon an agent under a healthcare power of attorney. You can be an agent under, under both of those documents, but just because you're named as an agent under a healthcare power of attorney doesn't mean that you're also nominated as an agent under a financial power of attorney or vice versa.
0: Although, uh, I gotta say, I'm speculating here, since a, an attorney was involved in drafting mom's power of attorney in this case. It just strikes me as highly unlikely that they didn't draft both kinds of documents. It also probably ought to be said that uh, there's no legal reason you couldn't put a financial and a healthcare power of attorney in the same document. And some lawyers who prepare them do it that way, but it's not the more common approach. Most lawyers and most forms separate those two functions out. So let's guess that probably in this case, the, the wife of the questioner, has both a financial and a health care power of attorney. What else did they need in order to assign mom into the into the assisted living facility or wherever she was going?
1: Well, gosh, Robert, I would really love to see the terms of, of the documents. Generally speaking, when we look at somebody's health care power of attorney, there are provisions in that document that would allow an agent to do things like determine placement interview agencies, hire caregivers, sign contracts related to health care decisions. And I bet you, if there's a health power of attorney here, that it included some provisions that would allow the agent to take those steps. Now, when we look at a healthcare power of attorney, remember it might allow an agent to make decisions about someone's health, but you want to be signing, most often, signing contracts using some kind of financial authority. So when we see a durable financial power of attorney, oftentimes those specifically spell out the agent's ability to pay for things that would be healthcare related, like a contract for assisted living or something like that. So in this particular case, one thing that I can imagine is that the wife may have provided both the healthcare power of attorney and the financial power of attorney, and there must have been something that the organization had either in their protocol or their routine, whether they were reviewing the terms of the documents or misreading them, that somehow they didn't feel that she had authority. Which strikes me as a very funny thing if she was nominated as the agent under both of those documents.
0: I often say that that uh, uh, intake workers at healthcare facilities don't usually have very good skills as lawyers, and this strikes me as uh, maybe more evidence of that, that, I don't know, as between the person who you're signing a 22-page document with at the skilled living, skilled nursing facility or assisted living facility and the lawyer who drafted it, I'm just going to I'm gonna err on the side of the lawyer knowing how much authority the person had. And so it might be as simple as working up the chain of command and, and arguing with the intake worker saying, uh, no, we really do have a valid power of attorney and uh, and let me get the lawyer on the phone to try to convince you of that. Now I will tell you that I know clients have said that, but very few of them have gotten me on the phone and that's because I think most often once you say, let me get the lawyer on the phone, suddenly resistance begins to crumble
1: and it's important to read past page one of these documents Robert that's the other thing it's really important to become familiar with the different provisions in a power of attorney and I always tell people listen let's let's take a moment and really look through these provisions so if you ever needed to rely on one you could say to the person doing an intake at an assisted living facility hey here see this provision it allows me to do this now one thing that we haven't mentioned, Robert, is that in some healthcare powers, powers of attorney, they will include something like a mental health care power of attorney. That might be a provision that would be used in the event that the principal, the person who created the power of attorney, is unable to make medical decisions, particularly decisions with respect to his or her uh, could be mental health, could be care relating to psychiatric care and oftentimes we see assisted living assisted living placements ask to see if there's a mental health care power of attorney if in fact the admission would be to a locked unit and that's one of the things i'm wondering in this case robert is if the assisted living facility was saying that the agent needed to show that he that she was nominated under a uh, mental health power of attorney that would actually give her the ability to um, commit somebody to an inpatient evaluation or treatment.
0: That could be one of the possibilities, Elizabeth. Uh, and it occurs to me that there's one other possibility. We're having to read a little bit into the question, but, uh, but that's kind of how, how we proceed in these cases, is trying to figure out what the missing data might tell us. And, and here's another possibility that strikes me. It may have been that the power of attorney was what's called a springing power of attorney. The power of attorney document itself might have said that daughter only has the authority to handle finances for mother if mother is incapacitated. And in that case, I can imagine an intake worker saying, you don't have any evidence that your mother is incapacitated. uh, And therefore, your power of attorney has not yet sprung into existence. This is exactly why we are less and less um, in, in favor over time of having springing powers of attorney because that re- mandates that there be some sort of medical evaluation before you can even use the power of attorney. and it and it puts the subject of the power of attorney in the defensive position of having been declared incompetent. I put air quotes around declared because, there isn't really a formal process to declare somebody incompetent, except in a guardianship proceeding, uh, and uh, and the whole reason you're doing a power of attorney is to avoid that guardianship proceeding. So it's just a lot smoother and cleaner if the power of attorney exists immediately and survives your incapacity. What we in the industry usually call surviving powers of attorney, um, and uh, and then you don't get stuck with that with that question. As I said, we don't know that that's the problem in this case, but um, but it strikes me as one of the possibilities.
1: And we're seeing, going back to the mental health power of attorney, Robert, we are seeing more and more assisted living placements that have locked units for folks who may have memory issues or behavioral health issues require that in order to have somebody become a resident of this facility if the person cannot sign the paperwork themselves that that person's agent would have authority under a healthcare power of attorney with a mental health provision to allow them to sign a document where the principal could be in a locked unit which are not that uncommon for folks with ha- who have um, memory memory loss
0: so Again, we're not sure what the real problem was in the question that that our listener has posed to us, but we have a number of possibilities. Maybe only one of the two more common kinds of powers of attorney was ever executed. Not too likely, but it could be that that's the case. Maybe the intake worker just was legally wrong and, and got bad legal advice or misconstrued something that they were told from some earlier incident or somehow just decided they didn't want to play along. Maybe the power of attorney was a springing power of attorney and the intake worker had decided it hadn't been sprung yet. Maybe the power of attorney didn't include mental health powers or didn't specifically include placement powers and, uh, and those were necessary for the particular facility. All of those things might be some part of the reason that it didn't work, but I think that we need to reassure listeners, clients, and the general public that when you have a power of attorney, the vast majority of times uh, things work out. You don't have this kind of resistance. This is the rare case, not unheard of, but the rare case. And sometimes that means a follow-up call from or, or with the lawyer who drafted the document to explain to somebody, some difficult person in the intake office at the assisted living facility or at the bank or wherever, to explain that yes, they do have the power to, to handle those transactions.
1: Wow, Robert, this gives me a little bit of a headache. I thought powers of attorney were supposed to help avoid headaches.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, and, uh, and the 22-page document that uh, that the questioner allured, alludes to the thing that is necessary to get into the uh, assisted living or whatever kind of facility it was is a headache of its own. Um, in addition, and, and I think you pointed out, Elizabeth, that maybe uh, the power of attorney that they presented was a financial power of attorney and not a healthcare power of attorney. But I'm going to predict that 21 and a half of those 22 pages were about finances and not about healthcare. Uh, so, I think that probably the facility was just wrong is, the, is kind of the bottom line here. Well, I hope that's been helpful for people to understand the usefulness and vitality of their powers of attorney. You've been listening to me, Robert Fleming, and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, <laughs> talking about powers of attorney on elder law issues, our periodic, mostly weekly podcast And uh, we hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks, Elizabeth, and thanks to our listeners.